one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from Football 365, and Adrian Clark the tactical analyst. Manchester City's appeal against a two-year ban from the Champions League will dominate the week. It isn't a normal sporting disciplinary issue. It gives us a glimpse into the future of football itself. On the one hand, we have UEFA fighting to reassert its authority. On the other, we have City, a state-supported club with global influence and aspirations. Both sides have requested confidentiality for the three-day hearing in Switzerland. Both sides have spared no expense in assembling high-profile legal teams. The stakes couldn't be higher. Now, Seb, this could be as game-changing as the Bosman ruling, couldn't it? More so, perhaps, Mike. For UEFA, if UEFA were to lose this decision, you wonder where their authority is. I mean, obviously... We're heading for some kind of restructure anyway. I think that's the kind of the macro aim for the game in the long term. But given that UEFA have kind of pushed all their chips into the middle of the table here and, you know, of all the sort of the, the leaked documents that uh, implicate Manchester City, I think it, it insinuates a fairly dogged attitude from UEFA themselves. They are determined to punish City. They knew that going down this road would lead to the reaction that it has provoked. And so it becomes a sort of winner-takes-all scenario. I mean, it's almost not worth thinking about what would happen if... I mean, it, it's not about a you know a, any kind of insinuation of guilt on Man City's part. It's just that if UEFA lose, then what do UEFA mean? I mean, in the ideological sense, what is UEFA's purpose from that point? What is the value of not just FFP, but their entire stance on the game? So... If they do lose, it almost creates a, a, a blank canvas, doesn't it? It creates a situation where the, the body charged with ruling the game in Europe no longer really has any authority, which is a very strange sentence to say. It's, I almost can't believe I'm actually saying it, but that is, that, that, that's, that's, the, that's the result, potentially. But Manchester City, didn't they? They, they basically, part, part of their reaction to the charge initially was that they accused UEFA of being judge, jury and executioner over their own competition, which I think to, to most sane people, you know, it's their competition, it's their rules. If you are, you know, well, deemed uh, to have broken them, 
Hey, then... no, I, I would say, sorry, mate. I, I say, well, what do they expect? I mean, who, yeah. who, who, who are? This is not government, really, in the in the yeah. political sense. This is you. you what what, what separation of power do, do people yeah. expect to exist within a UEFA competition? Yeah, um, and 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 your point, and that makes your point very relevant because if if UEFA were to lose, and, and therefore their authority over their own competition, their own rules, is effectively quashed. Yeah, it's carte blanche, isn't it, for, for, for anyone to do whatever they wish. And, and, yeah, it's very, very dangerous. It's going to be fascinating to find out. I, I just wish it wouldn't take so long because, Mike, obviously the, there are a number of teams chasing fifth place now, aren't there? <laughs> Which is not normally something we discuss in, in great detail. But but there will be a number of teams with the eye on the, on the prize of fifth. I think it's only fair and right that, that they should know ahead of the end of the season whether that is going to earn a Champions League place or not. But but these things drag on, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Well, the hearing's due to, due to last for three days. Now, the, the word is that it might take a couple of months to actually reach the verdict. And I suppose, you know, as you said, Aid, that's not fair on anyone, including the team that finishes fifth, especially including the team that finishes fifth. You know, all we know is that the hope is that the verdict will be reached before the round of 16, the current round of 16, resumes in August. I suppose we have to say that you know, Ferran Soriano, Manchester City's chief executive, has said the clubs will bring, and I quote, irrefutable evidence that the claims aren't true. But I just want to look at the bigger picture, both at a, a, a club level, in terms of what this would do potentially to Manchester City, but the big picture. We've talked about Super Leagues, we've talked about big clubs getting bigger. I suppose if UEFA lose this, the whole principle of financial fair play will be unenforceable, won't it? You'd have thought so. I mean, financial fair play is... Now, let, 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 I mean, just before we go on, let's clarify this. I don't think financial fair play is an unambiguously good thing for the game. I think there are, are arguments for and against it. I think it entrenches position. Yeah. And, and, and City will say that it's basically the status quo, which doesn't really want to include them. And I would say back to them that that's all well and good, but it's what you signed up to. So making arguments about the virtues of financial fair play after you've been accused of breaching its regulations is not really... It's kind of disingenuous. But I, I, I actually, what's the question, Mike? Sorry. <laughs> well, well, the question is, where, where, are we, where are we going with this in terms of, you know, we, we are getting to a stage where football will become the Wild West and the sheriffs will be vastly expensive lawyers who, you know, have been flooding into Switzerland as we speak. So that is the problem, isn't it, that... that you know, any game, the, the game of football depends on people accepting a central form of authority, which is being challenged completely here. But isn't 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 the natural repercussion, though, that the into the kind of into the vacuum left potentially by UEFA's defeat, a different body, a body which is built out of the interests of the major clubs develops and that takes its place. That's my fear, because that becomes the kind of. That's like a, you know, like a, a parliamentary coup. You know, eventually the people just accept it because that is the natural order of things. And, and so that's probably what I think would happen. Well, that, that's inevitable, isn't it? You know, I think that that, that will happen if City it, win. Uh, yeah, on, on, look at the EFL at the moment. The EFL are effectively ruled by the clubs. And what a mess they are making of this situation 
the clubs themselves obviously are looking over their own interests and of course that that is what we're looking at in terms of the future of the highest level of football if we go down down that route you know I, I sincerely hope hope it doesn't happen on FFP by the way Mike I can't see in the short term post pandemic how it can exist really and in, in, in a strange way because everyone's finances will be so different and the, and the losses incurred will be so huge that I just think it you, you kind of need to recalibrate over a period of time but 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 the irony here is that that actually football will need the clubs that are owned by the states clubs like city like you know others PSG well you know wealthy individual owners like Roman Abramovich football needs them to pump some money back into the game doesn't it to kick start the football economy so so the very people that FFP has been designed to to sort of curb and limit I, I, I can't see how how they can't now I say come on please please start spending some money so we can generate that you know that football economy again strange times it is and, and you know I think probably what we've got to accept is that you know city's global model with I think it's nine at the last count nine clubs at the last count eventually will have greater commercial and strategic power than, than the authorities that we've come to recognize over the years especially you know as you said Seb in a some sort of super league breakaway culture I just want to turn it on its head what happens if City fail to overturn the, the sanction which is you know as we we better say it's pretty un, unprecedented it's alongside a 30 million euro fine which I know is you know that can be found on the back of a sofa in the city these days. But the whole point of what this will happen, you know, what will happen here to City? Will we have player migration? What impact would it have, do you think, on, on Pep Guardiola's future? Or would it give the club a cause to rally around? What do you think? I think a little bit of both. In terms of a cause to rally around, I, I think we're already seeing that. I know we're going to get to this, but the sort of the reaction of supporters and the kind of reaction to adversity culture, the, the kind of the, the victimization that comes with sort of a, an authority targeting a club. With Guardiola, I, I don't know because I, I mean, my instinct would say that sort of without the opportunity to win a European Cup, why is Guardiola there? You can make a case for saying that he wants to kind of reclaim his primacy from Jurgen Klopp. That's fair. But then also, you know, if he were to leave, where would he actually go to? So without a landing spot for Guardiola, there, there's no kind of, there's no exit strategy. Financially, it was probably a bit easier to answer this question three or four months ago when we, when we didn't have a pandemic to deal with. But obviously, every club in the country, no matter what they're backed by, no matter whether they have a, a sovereign wealth fund in their corner or not, there is going to be an implication from lost revenue. So it's going to be really interesting. I, I suspect, actually, I mean, do we, do we really think that both years are going to stand up? It just seems much more likely, and I, I don't know whether this is kind of past precedent speaking, but in this situation, it always seems like one of these years becomes suspended, and it becomes a sort of a, it, the, the the initial judgment, the the end judgment becomes an almost almost an exercise in compromise. So it really wouldn't surprise me to see that, and to see this sort of the, the punishment scale back. No, and and that I think will be the deciding factor for for a number of the players. If I was to put myself in in Kevin De Bruyne's shoes, for example, he's twenty eight. Could he swallow one year without Champions League football to, to continue his, his sort of legacy at Man City? I think he Probably. could. Probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but but two takes him to 30, he'd be 31 the time he gets back in the Champions League. Yeah, that, that that's a big decision for him to make. And, and, and he's already alluded 
to that. Guys like Sterling and Laporte and Bernardo and Edison, they're still young enough, I think, to, to, to take the fact that one year that they could be out of it. So I don't, I don't think there'd be a huge exodus. I Personally, I was convinced that Pep would leave City, possibly at the end of this season, if it had finished normally. I actually feel that the, because of the current scenario, it almost makes it impossible for him to to move on. And I don't think he would want to leave City in the lurch like that. And obviously, he's, he's, he's in the process of appointing a new number two at the moment, which is a really positive sign for, for Guardiola and his, and his future. So, yeah, I think, I, think if, I think if it's knocked down to a year on appeal, it won't really impact Manchester City's squad too much at all. Yeah, I, I do sense, Aidan, since you've mentioned it, that this move to appoint a new assistant will be very significant. Wanmar Lilo is someone that Guardiola has respected, almost almost a mentor in a coaching sense. He played for him in Mexico, pretty much unpaid for about five or six months. He's seen as a key coaching influence. He's credited, I read, I think Rory Smith wrote about it as a as a pioneer of four two three one. That you know, Rafa Benitez especially has talked very warmly about him. Well, it can. It suggests to me one of two things: one, that Pep has a longer-term commitment, or two, he's quietly getting into place a succession plan, and Lilo will be his successor. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't. I, 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 yeah, I genuinely don't think. I don't think there's anything on his managerial CV to suggest that that he's good enough or the right man to to lead Manchester City post Guardiola. I just genuinely think. He needs a new right-hand man, Mikel Arteta. It's a long, long time since he left and he hasn't filled that post. And the longer that went on, um, the more speculation would grow that, 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 that he would leave. So I just think he needs, he needs someone he can trust by his side in the short term. Now, what is short term? I think it's at least, you know, to the end of, of next season. That's, that's how I would see it. The other factor here is they call him the, he calls him the maestro, doesn't he? So he absolutely loves him to bits. The risk here, and I've been in dressing rooms where they've changed the number two. And number twos don't get talked about a great deal in the, in the wider discussions about football. But they're really important people. And, and players tend to have closer relationships with the number two than they do with the gaffer. And it's, it's a critical appointment because will, will the players take to him? I think every time you every time you employ someone in that position, it's a slight gamble. Will they take to him? Will they like his training sessions? Will they bond with him? Or they trust him, and and these are all unknowns. I'm sure it'll be fine, but but that change comes with a, a degree of risk. Guys, I think he's uh, he's there to challenge Guardiola too intellectually. So you remember when he was on his sabbatical, there were all those anecdotes about him playing chess with Gary Kasparov. He's that in this in this context. He is he's someone that he and I must apologise, listeners, as someone as a um, as a, the guy cutting the grass outside goes past <laughs> on his <laughs> on his mower. <laughs> <laughs> these are things we have to tolerate at the moment i'm sorry about that um he, he's there as, as it doesn't as sound someone... like a fly mo it's, a, yeah, it's no it's i'll tell you it's not it's, he's doing the communal garden and he is going uh he's about a foot away from my um my living room window so um it shakes the house when he goes past so goodness knows what it does for the podcast quality i mean all the anecdotes about their relationship in the past involve their debates um you know, and the discussions, the hugely in-depth discussions about the game and the culture of the game and the evolution of the game. There, because I, it's an interesting time to bring him in. I mean, they're, they're close, but he's also, Lilo's coming at a time when Guardiola needs 
that kind of challenge because he's got a little bit of a conundrum on his hands. He doesn't have an answer for for what Jurgen Klopp has brought to the Premier League. His Manchester City are um, clearly at the moment inferior to what Liverpool have been in tone, in structure, in in effect, in all kinds of things. Klopp has done what what Guardiola has failed to do in winning the European Cup. So Lula comes in and sort of he's almost it, he's almost a sort of a, a figure of disruption, isn't he? He's almost someone that comes in and you know it can sort of mentor him on the job. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's just someone. Yeah. To, yeah, he's a disruptor, isn't he? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that in the can kind be of conciliatory sense, and it, but... it will cause it will cause one or two ruptures, no doubt about it, behind the scenes. And it will, but it might just might perk Pep up a little bit, and you know, just when he's feeling like, you know, what can I do? I'm out of ideas here. He brings in this guy, like you say, to challenge him and 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 to renew his energy levels and and the energy levels of his players. Give the players belief. Ah, something new is here. Something fresh. Something, right, exactly. something, yeah, exactly. Just just to give them that lift in their quest to to win the Champions League and to to catch Liverpool up. So no, it's look, he had to do it, and it sounds like a wise choice. But a, a lot of it will depend on 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 how the players respond to this guy. Yeah. Okay. I don't really want to dwell too much on the reaction of the City fans because I don't think it's desperately helpful. You know, they they spent eight thousand pounds on you know what is pretty much an infantile anti-UEFA banner so I just want to go beyond that now and look at actually the financial implications of the of the Covid crisis because it seems to me that they are becoming very clear now you've had Spurs taking out a 175 million pound loan to tide them over conversely you've got Chelsea benefiting once again from Roman Abramovich's wealth and willingness to fund signings. Do you think in that context, the signing of Timo Werner is good business? Yeah, I, I do think it's good business. Yeah, I, I can't see the downside. Morata's on his way out, isn't he? To Atletico. It's pretty much, it's, it's, I think they're going to get 48 million for yeah. him from, well, from Atletico. It, so it's you it, know, five or six million. Yeah, yeah in that sense, it's, it's, it's really good business. You know, for Werner, a younger more more exciting player at the moment than than Morata. So so no, it's 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 good for them. They're flexing their muscles and 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 their recruitment. I would imagine is getting the Blues fans really really excited. Zayech is, is a is a really really talented footballer, isn't he? He will he will add something to the squad. And, and yeah, Werner feels a one one big hole because they've they've lacked a finisher this season. Chelsea Abraham has, has exceeded. Everybody's expectations. He, he's done fantastically well, but ultimately, I, I, I'm still not convinced that he is a number one for Chelsea. Certainly not as the principal lone striker. Maybe we'll see them pair up as a two, or or Werner will will play to you know wide of him, or even down the middle on his own. So so yeah, it's it's a signing they needed, and I was really interested in in, in regards to you can talk about the wealth of Roman and and, and that one that's obvious. But also the the youth of Lampard, I think, came into play. He's recently retired. He knows what modern players, what makes modern players tick, and I think he's he's done an excellent job by all accounts of selling selling himself, the club, the vision to the player himself. He, he knows the value of that personal touch, and I think that has smoothed the passage for this transfer to happen. So yeah, well, well played, Chelsea is, is what I'd say for for this piece of business. Yeah, they're certainly getting their, their business done early, aren't they, Seb? It looks like Leicester are ready to demand around about £65 million for Ben Chilwell. 
you know, on the simple premise, a bit like you know, Maguire and Man United, that Chelsea will stump up the money. Do you think, one, that Chilwell is worth that sort of money in this climate, and two, are clubs like Leicester going to profit from the you know, unquenchable ambitions of the high, you know, the top clubs? I think so. I, I think the key ingredient for a club like Leicester is that they aren't, you know, the old model of, of a club in their position was to kind of, it's almost like they couldn't stand to be asked the same question three times. He's not for sale, he's not for sale, I'll <laughs> oh, go on then, okay. And, and Leicester have kind of have, have broken that mould. Maguire, the Maguire example is, is perfect, Mike, because it was, it was at the beginning of summer, now he's going to cost X. And, you know, Manchester United spent, you know, six weeks sort of trying to, to haggle or negotiate or whatever. And then by the end of the summer, it was still, the, the same price was was still due. And I like it. I, I think that it, their attitude seems to be that they're aware of Chelsea's interest. I think everyone's aware of Chelsea's interest. But, you know, if you don't meet the price tag, you're not having the player. The real virtue of their situation is that they've built a project which... You know, maybe maybe someone like Ben Chilwell might be happy to leave for a Chelsea, but he wouldn't be desperate to leave, would he? I mean, he's he's on the he's on the brink of becoming England's first choice left back full time. He's playing with <clears throat> a group of players who are of a similar age, who by all accounts he gets on very well with, and for a manager that they're reacting to very positively. So you don't have a lot of the pressures that used to exist. Leicester is a very good. It's a very good place to be at the moment. And that is, you know, there's no leverage in that for a club like Chelsea or any other, you know, Man City, Man United. So it depends who's negotiating, Mike, I think. And really. what about Man City? If Man City were to come in for Chilwell, and we're, we're led to believe that they're they're interested as well. Would that, would that tempt him more, potentially? I think as a player, it might, with me, the opportunity to work with Pep, you'd think City would stand more chance of, not just, well, actually, I suppose at the moment, in light of what we've talked about, are they going to be in the Champions League? Would you leave a club like Leicester, who, who are almost certain to be in the Champions League, for, for a club that, that, that may not be in it next year? So, so that is, that is the, the argument against moving to City, I guess. Personally, I think he's a, he's a very accomplished left-back. But I don't think he's a special left-back, I'm afraid. I don't think I've seen enough of him to suggest that he can be a rampaging you know, Alfonso Davis type type superstar down the left going forward. Defensively, I don't think he's Ashley Cole standard in the tackle in terms of his defensive nose. He's, he's, he's good at everything, but is he great at, at either aspect of fullback play? I, I'm not completely sold on it. I like him as a player. I think that he, he's excellent. He's, he's international standard, that's for sure. He's worth, worth a place in England squad. But I don't, I don't know if he's worth that, that kind of money. And, and on, on Chelsea's point of view, they've got two very attack-minded left-backs that can't defend. We know that. So he would, he would improve them there. But Alonso is a lot better inside the final third, in my opinion, than Ben Chilwell, who has got into a habit, I think, this season of just checking back, playing the safe pass. And I think that's caused a little bit of frustration, actually, at the King Power Stadium. That yeah, He's not been as dynamic as they think he can be. So, yeah, he's a very good player, but I don't know if he's a special left-back. Yeah, I suppose Jurgen Klopp talked this week about, you know, how can football clubs preach prudence and sacrifice to their players if they spend £50 million plus on a player and pay him two hundred grand a week? There was an element, because that came after Timo Werner going to Chelsea, of, you know, I don't fancy, didn't fancy that girlfriend very much anyway. But um, <laughs> I suppose... 
As unpalatable as it seems, Seb, was Gareth Bale's agent, Jonathan Barnett, right when he said that player wages would be unaffected by the crisis? I think that refers to a very select group of players. I think a sort of a a Gareth Bale type of player that exists in the sort of in the game stratosphere. Yes, that's probably true because a lot of the things, you know, forget their value to football clubs, a lot of their kind of marketing potential and their value to sort of, you know, beyond the game. I think that remains unaffected. You can still use a a Neymar and a Messi or Ronaldo to sell uh, sportswear or, you know, luxury watches or, you know, uh, sports cars, that kind of thing. So, you know, those those things remain remain true. I think the middle class will suffer. I think they'll be squeezed. I think the idea that you can, as a, you know, a 7 out of 10 Europa League player, demand 130, 150 grand a week, I think those days are not over. But I think, you know, we might have to, you know, scale that back a little bit because I, I think... I think in when they come to negotiate that kind of contract, clubs will look at two things. Firstly, basic wage, of course, but also length of contract. Because do you, with the, with the sort of the, the knowledge of what a a pandemic can do or what a crisis can do, and, and importantly, the the understanding that football is actually not invulnerable to everything in the world, you're going to come out with a lot of clubs at the end of it who are a lot more cautious, who are a lot keener to protect their interests and a lot keener to to not put themselves at risk in the same way again. With regards to Jonathan Barnett individually, I mean it, it, it's it's hard to it's hard to sort of to accept his version of events as a kind of universal truth because he, the way he negotiates for his clients is fairly unique and very successful. Very well, yes and no. I would argue in Bale's case, no. I mean Gareth Bale is an extremely wealthy young man. Yes, could Gareth Bale's career have benefited in a sort of a legacy sense? If he'd taken a slight pay cut and moved somewhere else over the last few years, I'd argue yes. I'd argue that maybe his agent has been both his best friend and his worst enemy at times. That's just a personal opinion. I think that will, it, the way his career has been handled will affect how Gareth Bell is remembered in 10, 20 years' time. I think that's almost certainly true. But yeah, his, his basic point is right, Mike, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you used the right f- phrase in saying middle-class players, they're the, they're the ones that suffer. I think the young, youngsters will be kept on, they'll be the cheapest. The, the, the clubs will always want to look after their, their best players, their, their highest earners. It's those in the middle that, that will suffer. And I do think that there'll be new clauses, won't there, in contracts moving forward that, that, that guarantee that the clubs are protected for, sure. for, for, for things like this. Um, so, yeah. They'll be selling new degrees for that, Adrian. Like in a couple of years, you'll have to study for a year just to write those specific clauses about sort of uh, pandemic insurance and whatever else. <laughs> yeah. Watching football over the weekend, uh, the Bundesliga, I'd be interested to see what your reactions uh, were to the artificial crowd noise on the red button. You know, I watched uh, a couple of games and I was prepared, to be honest, to absolutely hate it. But I thought it was really cleverly done. I think it did add to the buzz of the atmosphere. And, you you know, there were occasional jarring sort of sights when you, you heard the buzz of the crowd and you looked and it was just, you know, empty seats. But I thought it was really good. What do you think, guys? I like it. I mean, yeah, we, we've talked about it a couple of times on, on this podcast. I'm... I'm in favour of it. I would use it. But I do think that the viewers should have a choice. I, I think that it should be A or B. Do you want the crowd noise or not? Because it isn't authentic, is it? And I think that we we as viewers have the right to to have the the real thing, so to speak. But personally, for enjoyment purposes, I prefer to have that little bit of a buzz there. It just feels more normal. 
and it makes me forget that that that, that, that in effect it looks like a training a training game so so yeah for me and also obviously a lot of my work is as a co-commentator and when you are co-commentating on a game and i've done a few in the checker trade trophy or the leasing.com <laughs> as it's called now and i've done it on the radio and it's hard because when no one's getting that excited inside the stadium because there's not many people there it's hard to generate that excitement around a goal and, and you're a little bit more toned down in your reactions and that that's a bit alien to me because I, I like to be passionate and sort of sort of get into the games naturally and I don't want to feel like I've got to hold back so so yeah for me personally as a co-commentator I would I would have it in my ears I would choose to have crowd noise in my ears because it feels more authentic and actually you know hopefully I'm going to get some work on the radio in the, in the coming weeks and months I wonder whether radio might because obviously it's one or the other. I don't think there'll be a choice there. I'm not sure how they can do that. Will they choose to have crowd noise? Because I think for the listener, it would enhance it for, for the majority personally, rather than hearing, you know, the screams and shouts of individual players. So that would be that would be an interesting development. Yeah, what struck me was that was the the subtlety and the cleverness of it, and that did surprise me to be be honest, especially. You know, when goals went in, if it was an away goal, the the reaction was a little bit more muted than it would be when a home goal went in. As I said, I was really surprised, Seb, and I'm prepared to accept it where I didn't think I would be, to be perfectly honest. What, what about you? Well, I'm a stubborn man, as you know, Mike. Um, <laughs> uh, but in this instance, we couldn't get it to work. So I'm not really... <laughs> what, what I will say is I've, I've, I've been watching a lot of Australian rugby league to, to fill the void and they've got it as a, as a default. You don't have to select it as an option. And it works very well. And it's interesting you mentioned the kind of the, the nuance of the noise. And that really surprised me too. I, I thought it'd be like, do you remember like computer games early in the 90s where you had sort of just generic sound? And so I thought that kind of when goals would go in, it would sound like, I don't know, like an episode of Funhouse with Pat Sharp or something <laughs> like that, you know. But it's actually, it's actually been done very well. And, and with football, I'm, 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 yet to, <laughs> I'm yet to work that out. But um, as and when I do, I'm encouraged by what I hear from everybody on, else. On that, on that by the way, uh, I, I, I don't think I'm divulging anything what, on, here. on Pat Sharp's Funhouse? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, fond memories, fond memories. Look, I have worked on games off tube, okay? So you're not always at the game it's a little trick of the radio just for various reasons especially if it's an overseas game you might be commentating on it from a studio in london for example and you will have the natural sound effects but there is always a provision there for if the sound effects drop off from the stadium and you have a generic crowd noise and i've commentated on games with that before and it is it can be disconcerting because it just doesn't go with the action that you're that you're commentating on, what I think worked well with BT, and and I think it will work in the Premier League as well, is is you've got a controller, you've got someone that's pressing the right buttons at the right time to to sync it with the action, and and that is the trick I think to to making it palatable for football supporters. Good. Well, you know we're all looking forward to the restart. Not long now. We've been talking about most valuable players at clubs. Go through the next batch if we could. Quite a heavyweight group, to be honest, starting at Manchester City. I'm looking for Americ Laporte to actually basically hold them together at the back. I think he's been their most reliable defender, pretty much an instant success there. And I suppose when he was injured, you know, you, you usually do work out how valuable people are 
by the chaos that's left behind them. So I think he's he's really, really good. Raheem Sterling, again, you know, we, we look at the papers today, he's talking about much broader issues than the Manchester City and even the Champions League ban. He's talking about fundamental social issues. I think he'll come through again as well. So who will you be looking for uh, maybe beyond those two? Well, first of all, I really agree with you. I, I, I mean, Laporte is the only defender there that you trust. I mean, he's he's not only an excellent defender, he's a, he's a real threat from set pieces in the other box too. But I'm going to pick Kevin De Bruyne, Mike. I don't think that needs much explanation. I think he is, for me anyway, the most complete player in the league. I love watching Kevin De Bruyne. I love his range of abilities. I love the idea that what was previously a, a fairly static number 10 skill set has become this kind of very dynamic football, footballing aesthetic. I, I just, I think he's he's a fabulous player. I just hope that as and when the league comes back, he is fit because there is a big difference between a kind of a half fit Kevin De Bruyne and a fully fit one. And there's a big difference to Man City. If he's fit, it makes the world a difference because, you know, they've still got an FA Cup to win, obviously. Yeah, not much more to add on that, really. Yeah, with Sterling, I think he had gone a bit off the boil. Maybe the break will will, will have done him good. I'm looking forward to seeing him uh, hit the ground running. I ha- actually have a feeling he might. I think he's going to be a real threat. Yeah, let's look across Manchester at United. Aid, you know, Marcus Rashford had, had missed, lest we forget, I think it was nine matches before the lockdown. Here's someone who I think is growing into his role and responsibilities both on and off the pitch. I expect him to come back with a bang. What about you? Mm, yeah, I, I, I really like him as a person. Seems so so well brought up. He's just a, an all-round good egg, isn't he, Marcus Rashford? And United are so much better with him in the team. So, yeah, no, looking forward to seeing seeing how he, he fares, I guess, after this, this break. I hope he's fully fit. Obviously, the Pogba, Bruno Fernandes, Axis, will they play together, won't they? That will be fascinating to see unfold I actually I would pick out someone to, to watch keep your eye on would be the keeper David De Gea I think there are elements to suggest that this season again he's, he's dipped is he shot is he is he ever going to recapture the the brilliance let's face it he was unreal for, for several campaigns for Manchester United for me at the time the best the best keeper in the world he's not that anymore and he's making a lot of mistakes and he's a difference maker for Manchester United. If if he can somehow recapture his best form, United will pick up the points they need to potentially overtake a Chelsea. So I think he's 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 really really crucial. I've I've got a feeling that 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 he's he he might eventually be sold on. I think I think that Henderson could could apply enough pressure for them to make that change, especially if he doesn't perform well over the coming weeks. I'm going to go left field when we're looking at Newcastle, Seb. I'm going to say that Steve Bruce could be the MVP simply because so much of the focus will be on him. We all know what happens when ownership changes and, you know, who knows, they might eventually get round to um, sorting something out up there. It's really unfair, but it is understandable that all the attention will be on him, won't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... The reality is, Mike, is that Steve Bruce could win the Premier League, the Champions League, the League Cup and the FA Cup and they'll still get rid of him because that's just how it works, <laughs> I'm afraid. that That's, you know, I, I think that this sort of, it sounds very, very harsh and unfair and it is in many ways, but um, if the takeover goes ahead, then sort of the best situation that he can hope for is to come out with his dignity intact 
And I think he's more than capable of doing that. But he it will get very boring very, very quickly in press conferences. I know those in themselves aren't going to be very, very normal for a while, but <laughs> yeah. he is going to be asked that question an awful lot about, you know, whichever name de jour is being floated in the press that morning. Can I pick out Joe Ellington, actually, Mike, for Newcastle? Because I think there's a player there. I mean, Newcastle are going to survive. But I think kind of if he uses this remaining bit of the season to prove that he is not necessarily a £40 million player, but just a capable goal scorer in this league, then hopefully as and when funds are available, they can build some pieces around him, you know, to build a little bit of an an attacking platform for him to operate from. I'd be interested. I don't think he's as hopeless as people say he is. Well, what about Norwich, Aid? Yeah, it's a club that I, I think is run terrifically well. I think Emi Wendia... He's one of those players who will be sold on if they get relegated. I think he's too valuable to go back to the championship. I think he's becoming a pretty much complete midfield player in many, many ways. Anyone there that you would put in the same category of someone who is too good to go down? Max Harris, I think, has, has proved his worth as a, as a Premier League player. Took him a while to, to find his feet in the top flight, but he is very, very young still. And... Yeah, he's just a player with, with immense potential. Maybe not Alexander-Arnold potential, I don't know. It's, it's, it's difficult to say. But as soon as I saw Alexander-Arnold, I was really struck by him and how, how confident he was, how accomplished he was. And I, and I get a similar feeling with, with Max Ahrens. A lot of big teams will be after him. So yeah, he, he's the one that I'd pick out. But in terms of the influence for the team, most important player for the team right now in their bid to survive, aside from Ben D, it has to be Pukki. He is still there their best centre forward, their best finisher by miles. All we, all they need is a hot streak from Timu Puki, and it could bring them, you know, right back into the frame of surviving. So, so he, a lot rests on his shoulders, I think. Yeah, I suppose if we're looking for the anti-individualism club, Sheffield United probably qualifies as that. Lise Mousset. Now he's had no goal since I think the last one was against Wolves on December the first but he's still tied as leading scorer with John Fleck, would you believe? The, that, to me, you can look at that two ways. One, it could be a condemnation of that that group, that you know, five goals is your leading goal scorer. But equally, it's about... That's a, a, a miracle of man management, isn't it? Where do you stand on Sheffield United, Seb, and who are the individuals that still, despite the collective culture that's gone on there, that stand out for you? Where I stand is universally positive. I'm full of admiration for what Chris Wilder has done and for what that group of players has done. The thing that's missing from... Okay, so I'll take your point about the, the sort of the lack of a, a headline goal scorer there, Mike. But the thing people forget is that they've got the second best defensive record in the whole league. I mean, they've conceded less than a goal a game, which is an amazing achievement. Individually, like I... I <sighs> I don't think of them in that way. I think of them as a departmental side. I mean, we've talked about Henderson. Perhaps that's the only true individual in the team. But I think of the way that the, the different areas of the side have operated. So the midfield, I know John Monstrum has had a you know a bad patch over the last few months. But him, I, Fleck has been excellent. Ollie Norwood, I've loved watching. I've always thought Ollie Norwood could find a, a home somewhere in the Premier League. So it's lovely to see him actually get that chance. But the entire system has just worked so well. And also you've got the kind of the contribution of people that aren't quite in the side. Someone like, for instance, Ollie McBurney. I think he's had a very positive first Premier League season or first Premier League season proper. And the whole thing just works. Um, I was lucky enough to to see Sheffield United on the first 
day of the season back at Bournemouth. And they played Bournemouth off the pitch. They were absolutely excellent. And it's kind of, it's very gratifying to see this happen, to see a kind of a victory for mechanics and not organisation in the blunt sense, but just good, well-coached football. And because that's what they are. And they are, they are, they are such testament to their manager's ability. And wouldn't it be great? You, I, I, look, I, I have my own little vested interest in this. I would love Sheffield United to qualify for the Champions League because so many people would hate it. So many people would hate it because it's sort of, you know, it's taken, what, seven months for Chris Wilder to get, you know, praise in the sort of the mainstream sense. And he has done an amazing job. One of the best first seasons I've seen from a newly promoted side in the history of the Premier League, honestly. You know, I, I want to try and sort of bring things together now. And I'd like just to ask each of you, to examine one particular issue. I think with Seb, sorry, with Aid, I just want you to dwell, if you may, on what's going to happen at the lower levels of the game. You know, there is still this hint of ingrained selfishness that, you know, the Premier League have, have yet to offer any financial aid to the EFL despite government demands. And there's talk about cutting solidarity payments by 25% next year if this season's curtailed. But specifically, you mentioned it earlier on, you know, this whole League One, League Two decisions we made or confirmed on Tuesday, it does seem that they're going to basically decide things by points per game. And that means that the playoffs will be Wickham, Oxford, Portsmouth and Fleetwood. That's going to cause all sorts of ill feeling and, you know, our learned friends might be getting involved yet again. Mm, well, they? yeah, Ill, Ill feeling and resentment that could drag on for years and years, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's it's a sad state of affairs. I think the structure of the way the EFL is, is set up, where the clubs have so much power, has caused it. And also the lack of support from from above. And we have, we have touched on this quite a bit over recent weeks. I just, I mean, you look at Germany, German top flight clubs, they put their hands in the pockets, they created a solidarity fund. And it's saved tiers two and three, isn't it? And and you know they're functioning; they're able to 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 play on, and and it yeah, it, I, I I do feel pretty angry really that, that the Premier League clubs and and the government and and the PFA haven't haven't pushed harder for this, haven't for the EFL themselves that they haven't pushed hard enough to ask for it because they need it to 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 get to get their seasons done in the right and proper way. And also, let's be fair, to get themselves in a position where they can even contemplate starting next season. I mean, this was good. This is my thought for the day. What about next season for Leagues 1 and 2? It's the, the only way I can see them starting or even being able to take place is, is if fans, if the pandemic calms down to such a degree where you can bring in a certain number of fans into stadiums and spread them out or they get this this solidarity fund from above. If they, I, I think there's a very, very real prospect, and it, it really hurts me to say it, that there'll be no League One or League Two season. They have to con- start contemplating the fact that they might not be able to afford to put on a campaign because where is, where is the money going to come from? How are they going to be able to fulfil players' contracts? Will there be, you know... A, hundreds and hundreds of footballers who have their co- contracts null and voided. We talk about leagues being null and voided. Could contracts be null and voided because there's no league to play in? And I'm, I'm talking about the National League here as well. I'm really worried about the National League who are in an even worse state. You know, they don't really, you know, 
everything is on a smaller scale there. There's so much to be concerned about and I, they need help. They need help from above and I desperately want to see it. Yeah, I suppose, Seb, in a, in a broader issue, you know, restructure is almost going on on a daily basis at the moment, different ideas coming up in Scotland. There, that's raised the spectre of B-teams and it was a proposal by Rangers that both Rangers and Celtic put a B-team at the third tier of the new three-tier Scottish system, which would be 14 clubs in the Premiership, 14 in the Championship and 18 in a League One. You know, we've talked about the whole concept of B-teams over the past few weeks. Where do you think it's going in Scotland? Do you think because of the relative power, both politically and financially, of the old firm, that they would have got more chance of forcing something through like that up there? Yeah, you'd have thought so. I mean, any time you, you hear about B-teams or any, of the, uh, any similar initiative, it always comes from a bigger club. It always comes from the, you know, from the top down. And my, that's why I hate it. That's why I hate it. Because you, like I, I understand we're moving into a strange world where you know there are going to they're going to have to be some compromises and um, you know their their ideas like B teams potentially have to be rethought within a different context. But I can't I can't get over the instinct which is that it serves nothing other than the needs of a bigger club. It allows the use of a, a league structure for the development of you know um, an existing in Scotland's case a duopoly. I hate it. Hate it, hate it. Mike, can I can I bring up something else as well, just while I'm here, just because I don't feel like it's been covered enough. As of June the 1st, Newcastle United took another direct debit payment for future season tickets. Now, not every club in the country, not every Premier League club in the country has behaved in a particularly dignified or admirable way. They all, however, have communicated what their position is with regards to refunds or you know deferred payments, that kind of thing, with the exception of Newcastle. I've been reading some of the local press, and by all accounts, you know a lot of um, journalists up there have put questions to the club about you know what they plan to do with payments that were taken back in March for next season's season tickets in full, what they plan to do with payments for tickets which have already been rendered redundant by the COVID crisis. And also the bigger question of why are you taking money for events which for all intents and purposes don't actually exist. They will take place, but without crowds. And there is no, as far as I'm aware, there is no schedule for crowds returning this country. So for better or worse, I would really urge Newcastle United to start communicating because whilst the um, perspective takeover is possibly um, an asterisk against, you know, what whatever financial transactions can or cannot take place, there's no real case for... There's no real mitigation for, for not communicating that properly because people are suffering. People are short of money. People are losing jobs. People are losing relatives. So I think that's, uh, you know, well, let's not beat around the bush. I think that's an absolute disgrace to, to not communicate and not to give people clarity on that issue. I think it's awful. Yeah, here, here. I agree with that entirely. I'll end by just talking about the women's game, if I could. The season has been curtailed. Uh, Chelsea have been named champions, even though they were second in the table at the time of curtailment. That means seven trophies under Emma Hayes. It's just just reward for, you know, I think what is a hugely professional operation there. And it contrasts, I think, starkly with that of Liverpool, who've been relegated. And I just hope that's the wake-up call that the club needs because I thought it was put 
well by by Susie Rack, who's a of the Guardian. She's a regular on our women's football podcasts, and she believes that Liverpool's Premier League title should be tarnished by the relegation of their women from the WSL. Now, I wouldn't go that far, but she's certainly got a point that that Liverpool are at best, and I mean at best, guilty of taking their eye off the ball. If you look at their natural rivals, Chelsea, Arsenal, the Manchester clubs, they've all recognised the importance of the women's game and invested accordingly. They've moved beyond platitudes into professionalism in all its forms. Liverpool, once pioneers, let's not forget, are now treated like paupers. Their players are part-time and the one club strategy is basically a a sham. Now, it's a great community club that's acting against its traditions. I think the owners need to recognise their mistakes and their responsibilities to the women's team. Their women must never again be allowed to walk alone. So thanks to everyone for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast, and we hope to see you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.